Well, here's no surprise. Trade unions are threatening the to disrupt the ports in Durban. And uh, the privatization plans, of course, we discussed this last week, but labor unions are saying they might very well scupper the plans to get a private investor involved at the Durban port. We know that the Philippine billionaire Enrique Rezond International Terminal Services is interested in partnering with the South African government. But the United National Transport Union, the South African uh, Transport and Allied Workers Union, are now really demanding, and we did the story last week, but they're digging in their heels, the trade unions. We spoke to one of the unions, and they said, well, our job is to protect jobs. Our job is to protect jobs. So it's actually a very simple linear argument. We are not going to allow anybody to come in here who's going to cut jobs. Uh, yeah, we had that same approach at SAA. We had that same approach at Mango. We had that same approach at a whole host of entities that no longer exist or on their knees or a shadow of their former selves simply because we're unable to think about the sustainability of the organization. Because once the organization goes into the toilet, of course, so do all the jobs anyway. Lumkile Mondi is senior lecturer at the School of Economics and Business Science at Wits University. Lumkile, this is not a new story. This has sort of been picked up, uh, of course, by the um, by, by media for the last couple of weeks. But it just seems so self-defeating, doesn't it, that these trade unions are digging in their heels like this? Unfortunately, Bruce, good evening, uh, Remember, Bruce, that, you know, uh, our ports have been significant players, uh, not only in the South African economy, but the Southern African economy as a whole. Uh, we, we export uh, goods coming from the DRC, particularly in Mambashi, some from Zimbabwe, some from Zambia, including ours. More importantly, is the mining sector, uh, which in fact, uh, was key when we had a, a mini commodity boom uh, after the the, the COVID uh, uh, restrictions were removed internationally. So therefore, when we're talking about unions uh, being interested in job creation, that opportunity that we had uh, in this period, this period between 2021 and 22, we missed it. Although we exported a number. Uh, a, a huge tonnage out of the port of Richard's Bay and some in Devon. We lost quite a lot uh, of, of, of revenue. The point I'm trying to make, those is that it's very interesting that they're focused only on the jobs at port, not the whole economy, where jobs have been destroyed because of inefficiencies of these workers and their employer. So therefore, if we're talking about jobs, they should have risen and, uh, and went on strike much earlier uh, when there was repurpose and corruption in the institution and destruction of other jobs, where their comrades were losing jobs in the agriculture, in the mining, but more importantly also other revenue opportunities coming from our uh, neighbors, Jersey uh, as well as, as Zambia. So it's quite it's quite interesting that they are crying now when they should have cried long time ago in solidarity with others.
But here's the thing, look, Gil, I mean, we've got an economy that's on its knees already because of inefficient systems, inefficient processes. I mean, ports around the world that work effectively, the top ports are automated more and more and more. Um, and people have to then earn up to get jobs in the businesses that run those ports. If we're going to continue doing running our ports in the same way and, and more stories over the weekend, of course, of farmers in panic mode because the citrus season is in full force and we need to get our fruit into markets and the Ports are clogged and jammed and ships are waiting out in harbors and it's been chaotic and worse for a long time. This inability to take a big picture view of what's in the best interest of the country rather than a handful of trade union members is, I would argue, destructive. Indeed. I mean, it's also reflected from even the ministry itself, the public enterprise ministry, where you're getting a, a partner uh, who supposedly going to invest millions into our port infrastructure um, more important to create uh, much more uh, much more opportunities for increasing tonnages coming to our ports and yet the very same ministry talking about this process preserving jobs uh, making it very very difficult for the potential partner from Indonesia uh, who's trying to invest here in our country. So there's a mixed message uh, where, again, because I think it's election time, that the, the ministry, uh, as well as Transnet and its workers, want to preserve jobs and continue to change. When, in fact, that's not the economy wants. The economy wants an effective and working port. We want investment in infrastructure because that will drive investment in the other areas, uh, including agriculture, as you mentioned, mining, which continue uh, in certain areas to have opportunities. So this is the mixed message. Uh, to us, uh, Bruce, it really emphasizes that there is a complete lack of understanding about the historical and the pivotal role of ports and why South Africa is important for it. If you want to play in the global economy, it needs functioning efficient ports. Otherwise, we're going to be an economy that looks like a landlocked economy, focused internally, but without any opportunities of, of creating more value by getting hard currency and being able to really make sure that we've got enough resources to import more technology to grow those jobs that they're talking to. Wonderful. Thank you, Lumkiele Mondi. Thank you very, very much indeed. The self-defeating nature of our knee-jerk responses to the micro rather than the macro picture. Well, the standout point I picked up in Michael Flissmas's biography of Elon Musk was how uh, Michael Flissmas debunks the very popular belief that Elon Musk hates South Africa, that he's never got anything nice to say about South Africa, um, that he never supports his old school, Pretoria Boys High, etc., etc., etc. And... I think the the book suggests, I don't think it points out overtly, that Elon Musk is a very busy guy um, and that he is very occupied with running multiple businesses and he is a person of questionable personal habits and all sorts of other things. But does he hate South Africa? No, he doesn't. Um, does he spend his na- time navel-gazing about South Africa? No, he doesn't. 
doesn't. Um, and I, I was assured by Michael Flismus that until Elon Musk changed secretaries a while back, he was making annual donations to Pretoria Boys High, and fairly significant ones. So why do we not have Starlink in South Africa? Why do we not have Tesla in South Africa? Well, Starlink is easy. Regulators have to give the go-ahead. Why no Tesla? Well, over the weekend, Elon Musk, as he is wanting to do, has been active on the platform he calls X and the rest of us call Twitter as to why there is no Tesla in this country. Papi Mabele is the founding editor of the motoring website Toefold. Uh, it was a twofold. Um, I'm getting a couple of different uh, or, um, uh, messages here, uh, Papi. Just uh, correct me on that one, please. Uh, it's twofold, twofold.com, Bruce. Twofold, thank you, because twofold yeah. implies that you, you run tow trucks, and you don't. Yeah. Um, but twofold, that makes a lot more sense, Papi. Thank you very much for that. Why do we not have Teslas in South Africa, according to the great Elon Musk? Sure, Bruce. Look, it's, it's fairly simple and very simple. Um, input duties are very, very high in South Africa, and that's why we don't have Tesla. Um, for them to, to be brought into the country means that the selling price thereof will be so absorbent or so expensive that, you know, people won't be able to afford them. And it's, it's, it's pretty much the same reason why brands such as your VW and your Toyotas don't have fully electric vehicles in the country available as yet. It's just the price thereof will be skyrocketing. It will be, be massive. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, and, and he makes it very clear, and he and he tweeted or xed or whatever he did. He put a message on his platform this week, basically just saying that um, you know this is very simple a question of, of of duties, and we know that electrical car import duties in South Africa are outrageous and are constraining our ability to 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 buy electric cars. Uh, but he just said, look, you know. Until import duties change, there's no way that we're going to be able to you know, affordably get um, Tesla vehicles into the South African market. And this is all part of trade policy, isn't it? It's designed to protect the fossil fuel producing vehicle manufacturers in South Africa. Yes, of course. And remember, Bruce, a lot of um, these manufacturers have bases in South Africa. They do have plants and factories here where they actually manufacture, you know, the fossil fuel vehicles. But we're seeing a lot of that changing as well. A lot of the brands have said in the next few years, about five years, will be investing a lot in changing, you know, their, their architecture and making sure that they can accommodate, you know, electric vehicles and, and those of other new alternative energies. So it's something that will rapidly be changing as well as our government as well as said from 2026 we can look at policies changing we can look at you know new measures in place to make sure that we can actually afford or they're at least a little bit more affordable when you're looking at electric vehicles and um, that 25 percent import tax is, is a lot and it's heavy on the pockets of you know ordinary south africans and uh, we'll soon be seeing the change unfortunately it'll take a few years but we're slowly getting there no, exactly right. But um, also, we are embarking on the process of allowing the local manufacturers to produce EVs here. And I think Abraham Patel, the last time I checked, was looking at local manufacture by 2026. And it, it, you know, it feels like we're quite late to the party on that particular front as well. 
No, definitely. We are quite late. Look, the, the local you know, auto manufacturing industry itself has been tabling proposals and ways in which obviously government can revisit and revise our local policies um, to make sure that we accommodate electric vehicles and those uh, using new and alternative energy. But it's, it's just taking them so long to budge and come to the party as well. But uh, this statement by our minister, uh, which came out late last year, I think it's a good sign for now. But up until something solid and tangible comes out of it, um, it's still something that's far-fetched and very, very late to the party um, itself. I mean, the local market is yearning and they want to, you know, take part in this um, new and alternative energy boom of electric vehicles and hybrid vehicles and battery-powered vehicles. But um, it's just our government that's not coming to the party. Well, and then again, the issue of electrical shortages too, of course, is, you know, you, you, again, they're not going to break the grid. There are many other things that are going to do it long before then. But I mean, just how much capacity have we got really for electrical vehicles on our, on our national grid? Sure, but also then comes the issue of solar-powered, you know, energy. Um, there are stations that use solar power that can support um, electric vehicles. And also electric vehicles have regenerative features as well where you can regenerate some of the from your vehicle. So, uh, Bruce, look, in, in, the, in the grand scheme of things, I don't think that, you know, the, the push or that effect is that immense that our grid can't handle electric vehicles. There are alternative sources for us to get that energy as well. It's just government and all just coming to the party and saying, look, this is what we're doing. We're going to support this. We're going to um, make sure that electric vehicles are accessible to our people. And that's that. Thank you very much to our guests this evening. Our fab- fabulous insights into the world of electric vehicles. Papi Mabele, who is the founding editor of the motoring website Twofold. Thank you very much indeed. The Money Show. The Markets. To Arthur Karras we go. Arthur's a portfolio manager at Macro Solutions at the Old Mutual Investment Group. And typically one of these days, Arthur Karras, which is fairly directionless on the JSE, as we wait some sort of, I don't know, mystical sign from the stars or maybe just from central banks as to how the weeks and months ahead might play out. Yes, we're sitting between two great forces. Um, We've got the inevitable... um, a decline in cuts in interest rates that, that will happen sooner or later. And on the other side, we're waiting for the, uh, the Chinese government to do something about its uh, rather soggy economy and, and get that going. So depending on what the news flow is on any particular day, we lean into one of those directions. We do. At the moment, we're looming away from gains and away from profits and into the deep quagmire of currency weakness and a lack of investors' interest on the JSE. What's your reading as to when, if ever, investors are going to go, hold on a second, but these are good companies run by good people, staffed by good people, making good profits in all kinds of markets all over the world. We should buy shares in these things. I think that, that that recognition is there. I think people can see it. I think we, we do know that we've got a lot of good companies out there. In fact, running a, a company successfully and generating profits under the kind of circumstances that we have had the last few years, if you take into account you know, COVID and um, 
load shedding and, uh, and general economic malaise, then, then we've got some really good managers and really good businesses out there. But generally, people don't want to own companies where they don't see um, a strong profit growth or reasonable profit growth. So companies can stay cheap for a very long time. You need a catalyst. You need that economy to grow. And buying companies um, in a weak economy where there's a lack of, of, of catalysts out there um, can can be a can be a tall ask because um, you know, all professional investors have clients. Their clients want to see the growth, and um, and and everybody lacks a bit of patience. So we're really waiting for a catalyst. We need a little bit of good news. Um, you know, we've been making the case for a while that that even if the economy doesn't um, doesn't grow very strongly, we are going to see a cyclical rebound in some sectors simply as things normalise. I think you can still make that case, but we're still waiting for those earnings to show up. Arthur Karras, thank you very much indeed with the Old Mutual Investment Group. PwC has done its 27th annual Global Chief Executive Survey and it has found that global business leaders are starting to turn a little bit more positive about growth in the next 12 months compared to the doom and gloom they felt a year ago. Now, as always, there is this positive sentiment, but in many countries around the world, they're confronted with worsening problems um, and those worsening problems are largely societal problems they go from whether it be war in the middle east and in the ukraine whether it be continued high cost of living in south africa certainly it's high unemployment crime and of course load shedding uh, auntie pai is a senior economist at pwc and joins us on the line from joburg this evening uh, auntie i wonder what the the, the short-term challenges that we're seeing play out the commonalities that we're seeing play out practically everywhere <laughs> i thought we were actually um going to uh, give away everything that i am supposed to say but certainly we um um you know these challenges yeah, are, i could um, i could never give away everything <laughs> that you have to say there may be things you have to say but certainly the things that you need to say i'm, I'm curious because we, we kind of look at the world and we say south africa's a doom is, is in the is in a doomsday death spiral and we don't look up and we don't ask questions and we don't ask questions of people in other countries that say do you also feel like your country's in some kind of doomsday death spiral because i do feel rightly or wrongly many people in many economies do feel like their countries are in trouble like we do no, definitely, Bruce, and I think that's an important way um, actually of reflecting because then that actually positions us um, to do better in solution seeking because we can actually look at peer markets or at least at the globe and other markets and say, what are other people doing then? How are other people responding if they are actually facing the same kinds of challenges? I mean, certainly, they say also it talks to um, issues, for example, of, you know, of logistical challenges in terms of, the, of, um, of uh, value chains, and that's something that seems to be quite a problem. It's a problem for us. It's a problem across the world. Um, these CEOs are also talking about business viability. Uh, you know, they're very, very concerned that if they don't change the way they do business, they don't change the structures and the operations of businesses, their businesses may not exist. And that's a continuing problem because that last day, that was 39% of CEOs were worried about business viability. Now, 45 Already, it tells you something about really the economic headwinds, the changes in the environment, especially those mega trends around, you know, obviously politics, um, uh, issues of uh, the climate, um, technology, and other issues that have been emerging for some time, and that people are actually quite worried about. So the South African situation, although perhaps a little bit more exacerbated because our problems tend to be a little bit more intense, 
uh, does mirror some of the challenges that are faced by uh, by by uh, people across the world. Yeah, exactly. I mean, our own issues. I mean, the, we're used to volatility. We are used to disruptions in supply chains and the fact that we 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 can't access scarce resources well, particularly if you're poor in South Africa, you really do struggle when it comes to health care. And public institutions are under a huge amount of strain. Public institutions are, how they hold themselves together, I, I struggle sometimes to fathom. But it's there's also this underlying tone that in amongst all of this mess, a huge opportunity arises in the same way as we hope that the opportunity of the ports in Durban does come to fruition with some private sector investment, that the rail problem is addressed with private sector investment. I can't see another way out of it. There are many people who don't want private sector investment who will say that I, I want to give away the family silver. I, I, I just want to clean the family silver. We, we, we do need to be thinking about solutions to problems rather than just focusing on the problems themselves. Certainly, Bruce, and I think you, um, you highlight this, and this is also true in the energy sector, that you know the private sector investment. Um, it's not the same thing, and I think when people think about private sector, they always think about big business, you know, the scary big business that's coming together. But there's certainly also, when you think about private sector business, we also talk about actually ordinary people investing in energy, for example, ordinary people actually participating who have the, have the resources to actually participate, and we want to bring them in. Our players, that could be, I mean, the rail sector, of course, is, um, is very difficult to have uh, more, you know, um, you know, smaller businesses, but it needs um, really deep pockets, which government does not have money to do, um, given our fiscal situation. So that opportunity for the private sector to participate and help improve things, which actually also are in their own interest. And that's, of course, um, the idea that actually this is an opportunity for, uh, for the private sector to, to engage and to participate. And I think the one thing that um, we haven't done very well, and we talked about it for some time last year, is that, you know, the private sector has to do better in positioning itself, because there's really a lot of good work that <clears throat> does not position very well in the public eye about the work that we are doing, the investments that we are making actually ultimately benefit uh, everyone rather than actually close out uh, certain sectors of society, because that's really the scary thing about it, is that many people think if we, um, if we, you know, we've got private sector investment uh, in these key sectors, then that means that actually we're going to take these resources and these, um, these services away from ordinary people or from the poor or from smaller businesses and concentrate um, the benefits to the big business. And that's something that uh, the private sector has to work hard at, is to actually have a repositioning of the brand around how they are seen when they actually are running, um, you know, and have invested in important sectors. Andy Pai, thank you very much indeed for stepping into the PwC breach. She's the senior economist at PwC. And this idea of being able to see the upside of down or being able to see the opportunity in the chaos is something that I've been looking at for quite some time. I know Mark Sham is doing a lot of it as well. Mark Sham is the guy who's um, building the videos like a tourist and he posts on social media this evening. You do have to laugh. Whenever South Africans post about something positive that has happened, there are always a few who jump on the comment section and tell you how bad things are. They tell you to wake up as if you're totally blind to the country problems so this is my public service announcement uh, and then he says just for the love will you please allow people to celebrate without you being and then he uses a disparaging word which is tolerated on X but not on the wireless but basically it's a it's a rude word which just says 
Don't be an idiot. Don't undermine other people's joy. If people want to celebrate, allow them to celebrate. We're having an electrifying half hour tech with Toby this evening. All about another gadget gizmo. Well, what is it exactly, Toby, that can help fend off the load shedding blues? Well, Bruce, uh, it is uh, a very good power station. So power stations are much more sophisticated. Let's call them giant power banks. They, they're much bigger. They have much more power. They have this fantastic new battery technology called uh, lithium-ion phosphate, LifePO4. And it means that they charge much faster. So you can charge a power station, this power station. Uh, it's the Gizu Hero Core 5112 watt hour, 5112 WH. And uh, as we called it on stuff.co.za, another brick in the load shedding dam. And, and I'm very impressed with this. This is the upgrade of a, of a, of an earlier model, hence the, the word hero. Um, and what's interesting about, um, this model is they've just kind of rounded out the, the kind of rough uh, corners. They've put the charging dock on the side and they've covered it with a, with a little, uh, um, a cover plate. So the same as a, as you would use for a kettle. Hence we call it kettle plug and it can handle a maximum peak load, Bruce, of wait for it, 1600 watts, which is pretty impressive. And, and I, I saw a price for about, 800, 8,000, between 8,000 and 9,000 rand. It's got three USB-C ports, one of which does 100 watts, which will charge just about any notebook, a, a MacBook Pro, Bruce, or, or the very sophisticated, um, uh, MateBook, uh, Huawei MateBook X Pro that I spoke about last week. Those would use a 65 yeah. watt charger. So 100 watts is more than enough. Two of the old square-shaped USB-A ports, and of course, if you have a cigarette charger, which is called 12 volt, it is 12 volt. They have that input and output, very handy. Weighs six kilograms, and I just think it's a it's a great device. You know, I I, I bought the previous one for my mother, the Gizu Gizu Core 512 watt hour, and that, and that's you know that was that's absolutely fantastic, and and it's all she needs. Uh, for, for her purposes, got an LED light in the front. So you can, you can, uh, use that to, to light up a room if you need to. Um, and it's, uh, it's, I think it's great. And if you want to move around with it, Bruce, it weighs about six kilograms. I mean, even you and I could carry that around. Of course, it has a, <laughs> the, you know, ye old fashioned three pronged plug, uh, in the front. So you can plug South African, uh, plugs into it. It's one of the worst things the apartheid government left us with. I uh, know there's a long list. Too. I think there's a long, just there's a longer in technology terms. All right. <laughs> I mean, but yeah, the, the, the plug makes no sense. Um, little kids can get their fingers in the plug holes. It's a blimmin' shambles. It really is diabolical. I was yes. one of those kids, but I'm absolutely fine. Honestly, I am. That had no long term effects on me, Toby. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> but you know what's clever about this, Bruce, is that it, yes. is that yes. three prong plug. And if you really want to know, it's actually called the type d so that type d plug okay. has got an on off switch so even if you know it's like you know god forbid i mean your kids are big enough now they they should know not to put their fingers in plugs but you never know you know you never know no you really never know um yeah. let me see what happens if i lick it and put it in now there's a good idea don't do that <laughs> children um but but there, there, there are so many thousands in the load shedding wall <laughs>
Yeah, but there are so many thousands of these machines and these devices, and it does come down to the amount of power you can store, the ease of movement of these things, and the usability. So it's about the ports. It's about the ability of, to charge this thing up really quickly and easily when there is electricity. Then you can maximize the drawdown on it when the power does go off. And sadly, that inevitability remains with us. Okay, he's gone. That's fine. I don't mind. Toby Shepard oh, no, is the chief at Sub Studios. Of I course, he joins us on a Monday night thinking. as we talk tech with Toby uh, each and every single Monday evening. Lots of load shedding devices, lots of protective devices. If you've used that Huawei Mate, the latest one, the 40 grand computer, I'm curious if you are somebody who is from the Apple environment. That's the one that uh, Toby spoke about last week as to whether or not you're finding it adaptive, whether you're finding it useful um, in the world. If you prefer Windows machines, is it the best Windows machine you've ever had? I wonder. There are just so many tech alternatives and at various price points, the machines kind of feel the same. Um, He said risking the wrath of tech nerds everywhere. But I'm curious as to what your experience of technology is each and every single day because there is so much tech that is meant to make such a big difference in our lives. And so often we feel hamstrung and constrained by it. But my goodness gracious me, I I forget his name, but there was once an executive in the world of computers probably 50 years ago said there will never be a market for more than five personal computers in the world. And uh, he was wrong, as it turns out. And now, if you don't have a PC, you are seen to be constrained. Hugely, hugely constrained. The Money Show. Business Books. The book is called Losing the Signal, the untold story behind the extraordinary rise and spectacular fall of BlackBerry. And I'm reluctant to introduce anybody on the radio nowadays at the moment who uses the title Doctor. But I suppose I'm, I feel safe with this one. Dr. Ryan Noach, the former chief executive of Discovery Health, <laughs> moving to become the CEO of DNI. How's the shift going, Ryan? Good evening. Uh, in transition, Bruce, good evening. Um, I, I would say uh, frightening, exciting, uh, unsettling, uplifting, energizing, lots of different feelings and, uh, and descriptions. And terrifying, obviously terrifying. If it wasn't terrifying, it wouldn't be worth doing, surely. I mean, you, you rose to the, the, the heady heights, of course, of, of Discovery, ran the health program as well. What does DNI do? How does that fit into your particular set of skills? Well, that's a good question, Bruce, and I'm hoping I can find a clear intersection. It's a big <laughs> move for me. Uh, DNI is a technology business largely focused on the telecom sector, but, but, but diversifying now into a range of digital products um, and is very distant from healthcare. And as you know, I'm a medical doctor with an interest in emergency medicine. And so it's a big deviation from my core skill. But I'm really hoping my interest in digitization, uh, in customer journeys and payment journeys, um, and and my affinity for, for systems and financial services systems and integration stands me in good stead. I'm, I'm very excited. Is that why you've been reading up the history of telecommunications then? Because I was wondering why you'd gone all retro on us and had gone to... 
talk to read a book about a phone that no longer exists a phone that in its heyday was i don't know oxygen to people who were on the move all the time it was an absolutely essential tool but almost as fast as it rose it died out and died a very messy and ignominious death <laughs> precisely uh, bruce i'm trying to learn um in a very cool phase of of being able to absorb everything new around me a big part of dni's business is uh, that it supplies handset to this, uh, the mobile telecoms industry in fact uh, the two businesses in the dni stable that do this are collectively um, the biggest suppliers of mobile handsets on Afri on the african continent doing just over 5 million handsets a year and so um i you know the, the combination of telecoms and handset innovations uh, is very interesting to me and so that's my interest in the story okay so the book is all about blackberry uh it is now a relic of the past but it draws you in and i'm wondering if it's a case of you know you can be a superstar one day and absolutely nothing the next and uh, it's worthwhile remembering that you might be at the top of your game doing one thing one day uh, if you're not particularly fast moving if you're not particularly agile if you're not particularly attuned to what's really happening in your sector and the world you can be overrun and irrelevant in a very short space of time Yeah it's a, it's a really well written book and actually written by two journalists who specialized in uh, telecoms and so they have deep insight and understanding into the industry they also had significant access to various executives <coughs> excuse me in and around blackberry or rim rim technologies at the time and um as a result provide a, a very detailed analysis of what led to this roaring success this amazing success of rim technologies with the blackberry device and then uh, to a very precipitous fall almost just as quickly as they achieved success um and maybe bruce uh, since it's the first time i'm doing this you'll give me the latitude to give a short summary and overview of some of the key uh, the elements of the story and and really how I'm, i'm going to lean back I'm going to lean back and put my feet on the table. Oh, there we go. <laughs> Please don't go too far. <laughs> well, well, um ooh, this is right, the story. That's what happened, that's what happened to Blackberry, <laughs> yes. Yeah. This is the story of two leaders uh with very different capabilities. Uh but importantly, and I think a key message in the in the first half of the book, a very aligned ambition. Um these guys had complementary skills. The one guy was Mike Lazaridis who was an electrical engineer with an interest in technology uh his entire life. Um and he had a workshop in the basement of his house. He was given latitude at school where he had a a, a workshop desk and an engineering lab and even as a school kid was called into many businesses in fact. who were having technology challenges and amazingly this youngster could solve them all so that's the one guy the other guy is um and you have to excuse my pronunciation it's a canadian french um but uh, but this individual jim basilia um he he was more of a businessman who set himself a very clear and ambitious target of a harvard mba following his accounting degree and his accounting experience and achieved that early in life 
and had a set of commercial skills. And so the engineer and the commercial leader got together with very complementary skills. And uh, together they created this huge success. There's a quote somewhere in the book which I loved, is that the, the, the combination of these two leaders led to a perfect balance of profit and invention. Profit and invention. Um, and, and quite amazing. I think very relevant to your piece tonight, they were both inspired by books. Um, and I could spend time on the separate books. Uh, I'm not going to. Uh, but they were directly aligned to their core interests. And it, it, these two books that they were inspired by are a theme of how they created RIM. Anyway, they eventually after, uh, as in every startup, a long, a long history of lack of profit and no revenues and uh, almost closure, they were eventually lucky enough to get a contract to assemble a mobile network for a Canadian telecoms company called Rogers Cartel at the time. And um, this network was supplied by Ericsson. It was called Mobitex. And it was a very early technology to communicate messaging in the 1980s or early 1990s, late 1980s. Um, and they managed to put this together for this mobile network and successfully deliver on the contract and monetized RIM as a result. But more importantly, learned some real messages about customer needs in messaging uh, and came up with some clever ideas around devices. And so they went on very quickly around about 1992 to solve the mobile email riddle. I'm quoting from the book. And really for high functioning customers, for executives all over the world globally, uh, they developed this insight that the future of technology would be driven by hardware, not software, uh, and that this would create impact across the world. And the immediate availability of communications, messaging, and particularly email would change the way business is done. Uh, a bit of a segue here, but on a personal level, Bruce, I say this with forked tongue. I mean, one wants to love and hate this insight uh, because it, it did lead to the world of 24-7 online email, uh, your inbox always full. And uh, it, changed, it really did change the life of an executive dramatically. I think what was really fascinating it, it for did, me it in did, the success it, it, it of did that. Uh, sorry, uh, sorry, Ryan. It did that, but it also made mobile work possible. It made work from anywhere possible. It was revolutionary in its achieved technological achievement, but then also in its social achievement. Absolutely, and it had such a massive social impact. To your point, Bruce. So. While work became much more effective and the trajectory and speed of work was increased dramatically, it had this huge social impact. You know, they described executives landing on an airplane, switching on their devices and their inboxes filling up with those, uh, you know, those vibrations and beeps and the whole inbox cascading full as soon as you could switch your device on. And it, it really just changed the way people were functioning. You know, their marketing plan, I think, speaks to this point you made, um, which I wasn't going to talk about, but very interesting. The way they marketed the devices first was called the uh, the puppy test. Um, strange technology. But what, what Basili did was that he gave these devices for free to CEOs of very large corporations, configured them, worked closely with the CIOs to reassure them largely about the security issues, which were a major concern, 
but then uh, demonstrated to these CEOs how connected and online they could be all the time. Um, and, you know, they called it the puppy test because they said, take this puppy for a walk and tell us what you think. <laughs> uh, this led to these CEOs immediately ordering stock for all their top executives. And that was the beginning of their sales rollout. It was a top-down approach through a gifted technology to the CEO that worked so well that they bought it for their teams. Um, quite amazing. The, the thing that really impressed me about their build phase and uh, about the, their design elements was a very strong focus on a customer-orientated design set of features. And this was Lazaridis' input. He had very strong views, which would later be his downfall, about what customers wanted. He didn't go out and do customer research. He used his intuition to tell him what customers wanted. And I'm going to remind you of some of those key features. I hope you remember when you used your BlackBerry how it felt. I mean, the first was that very iconic keyboard Power. layout. Um, yeah. Power, I loved it. And they stuck to that very closely. Um, secondly was the feel and the click of the buttons. And they patented that button click, that feel that as you push the button, you got a, a, a feedback mechanism. Today on devices like the iPhone and the other smartphones, Samsung and Huawei, you get a haptic feedback, which is, you know, a, an electrical feedback from a vibration device. But that initial insight was actually BlackBerry's insight, that people would enjoy the feel of pushing a button. The, the third was the always synchronized inbox. That seems pretty obvious. The fourth was a set of shortcuts. And did you know that uh, the double space to lead to the full stop, um, the punctuation mark of a full stop in a sentence, that double space, that was BlackBerry's innovation. They were the first to do that. The other shortcut I remember on my BlackBerry was that if you held down a key, you got a cap. So it saved you a key press. And these were things that, that had huge impact. And then on the technology side, the battery life, the very efficient usage of bandwidth, and the uh, very high fidelity security features, uh, encryption, were three powerful, powerful differentiators. And that combination of things established the BlackBerry by 1999 as the world's leading device, messaging device. They only introduced voice and other phone components afterwards in later versions. But by 1999, you know, it had swept the world. It was in every country. And they were valued uh, later on in their listing by 2004 uh, at very high valuations due to their market position. We're out of time, but I mean, I just, you know, BlackBerry is non-existent today. And I mean, the, the big lesson out of BlackBerry, and I'm mm. guessing one of the reasons why you read it, is that if you're not evolving, if you're not learning, if you're wrong? not consulting, if you're not researching, if you're not keeping on top of what your environment is doing, you can be as smart as you like and you can drink as much of your own Kool-Aid as you like. But once your customer goes oh, you're not the best thing in the world anymore. There's something across the valley over there that is better. You're doomed. And, I mean, that is the, the curse, of course, of, of progress and technological innovation is it happens quicker now than at any other time in history. I, I summarized their failure into four very quick points, which I'll go through very quickly. The set of governance issues, their patents were found not to be solid, their remuneration structures were found to breach securities rules. 
The second set of issues was really a willing, a lack of willingness to challenge their model, to change and to re-innovate. And they fell behind the innovation curve. They stuck to Lazaridis' instincts on customers. But when Apple brought out a device with a touchscreen, they said our keyboard will win the day every time. And they, and they really got leapfrogged by Apple and Android. And then the other feature, which I think is a real lesson in technology, is they had core technology failures. They had a, a famous outage, which lasted three days um, in, in, in around 2010. And that outage really scared away almost all of their customers in one, one event, one technology failure. So there is a bit of hubris in my understanding that led to their downfall. And this led to dispute between these two leaders and a cascade, a rapid cascade and downfall. So amazing lessons in this book. I'd recommend it to anybody with an interest in technology or commerce. Uh, just a great story of how they succeeded and equally frightening how quickly they, they fell. Dr. Ryan Noach, thank you very, very much indeed. Transitioning as Chief Executive of DNI, which is a business that supplies uh, handsets and telecommunication devices. And he's kind of uh, working his way through the literature to prepare himself for the new job. And yeah, Mike Lazaridis is the guy whose job it was then to apologize to customers. And he gave that very, very agonizing um, monologue where, where we're sorry and we're sorry that we broke your trust. We're sorry that we did this. I was looking for it today and I'm sure it's available somewhere on the internet, but the places I went to to find it, it went, nope, this has been taken down. Nope, this is private. It is, remains a case study of how, one, not to get yourself into trouble, and if you do, how not to apologize for it. Dr. Ryan Noach, uh, former Discovery Health Chief Executive, uh, soon or transitioning to be CEO of D. N-I. How I Make Money now brought to you by Bidvest Bank. Bidvest Bank, built for your business. Let's join Dominic White this evening. He is Ethical Hacking Director and Managing Director of Orange Cyber Defense in South Africa. And I wonder, well, let, let's just break it down a little bit if we can, Dominic. What, firstly, is hacking before we move into the more technical aspects? But what is hacking? Hi, Bruce. Um, hacking is, is breaking into computer systems mostly, whether that be on a website or whether it be on a, on a server, trying to manipulate them to do something they shouldn't do or something a user or an, an owner or administrator didn't want to happen, um, or maybe just getting access to something you shouldn't. So it's either um, manipulating or, or gaining access is maybe the, the best definition I could give. Okay, and it's usually done for various purposes. It's usually done by somebody, some agency, seeking to undermine another business, seeking to undermine others, possibly to the for the purpose of extracting money from them. I mean, this is a serious criminal activity, a very serious criminal pastime nowadays, is, is gaining access to institutions via the Internet. Absolutely. I think you're talking about hacking with criminal intent, and maybe the intent's in, an important part as somebody who practices this as a legitimate profession. Um, but yeah, I, I think hacking to steal money or to um, manipulate things for nefarious ends, or even for espionage purposes, you know, all of those can have uh, illegal, illegal outcomes, even with a variety of intents behind it. 
Okay, so we understand hacking, we understand why some people do hacking, and on the other side of the spectrum, we've got people like yourself who hack as well. You're a professional hacker, but you embark on what you call professional uh, or ethical hacking. What is ethical hacking in the world of hacking? Well, well, I joke we have to call it ethical hacking because people understand hacking to be criminal. But if we were any, if we were consistent with this at all, we'd have to differentiate between ethical plumbers too. So I don't think hacking is necessarily uh, illegal by itself. What we do is we we break into systems uh, as as bad guys would, and then we demonstrate to people uh, with their permission how we did it, so that they can fix those holes proactively. So it's a little bit like uh, if you imagine that your home security company tried to break into your house every now and again and told you you kept leaving this window <laughs> open or your electric fence wasn't working. Yeah, I believe them. I really would. Um, do, do you do it as, as a way to get customers or are you hired to solve a problem or to test cybersecurity systems? Would you ever do it cold, essentially the same as a cold calling thing, phone up the CEO and say, um, I managed to get into your office computer. I've uh, logged into your personal banking. I've logged into every aspect of your business. I've not done anything with it, um, but I'm just warning you that I can. Or would that be then on the on the edge of, of, of legality? Well, that would be straight up illegal. So, no, we would, we would never do that. Okay. We need strict consent. Uh, we need a strict scope. We need to know it's owned so that the ta- that people hiring us can actually give us permission uh, to do it. It, it does happen. Um, it, it's wildly illegal. And certainly if I was running a business and somebody hacked all my stuff and came to me and said, I've committed a crime, would you like to hire me uh, so that other people can't commit crimes? I would be a little skeptical. So now we've got really strong rules about that because the only difference between us doing it professionally, legally and ethically uh, and criminals is consent. Okay. Under what sort of circumstances do companies contact you then and say, see if you can hack me, big boy? <laughs> well, I sort of call it the, the scale from, from Hollywood to the scientific. So the, on the scientific, we get everybody who's building an application, being at the banks, putting out internet banking, or maybe somebody's putting out some other kind of application. They want us to very scientifically enumerate all of the bad things that potentially happen so that they could close it down before it gets out there. And that's done in some cases with full access to all of the source code with the developers working to, uh, with us. On the other end of the scale, you've got the Hollywood. That's where they give us no information, uh, and we have to try and achieve all sorts of aims. You know, see if you can transfer large amounts of money, sometimes out of the country. See if you can gain access to to sensitive areas. So it, it, it's a spectrum. It falls somewhere along that spectrum. I'd say the most common is the scientific. The ones we enjoy the most are the Hollywood. So how might you go about it? I mean, as I say to you, Dominic, see whether or not you can hack my systems. Um, what do you what do you sort of begin to do? Is it do you send the phishing emails? Do you sit at your laptop and see whether you can guess the passwords? How do you do it? Well, the first thing is to really enumerate what's out there. You know, what are your potential access paths? People think hacking is all sorts of exciting things all the time, but the reality is the large majority of it is hunting for that one place somebody's made a mistake. So the more surface area you can find, uh, so it's not just the organizational systems, it might be um, individual people that are involved if you are going to do something like phishing. Personally, I find you know phishing a lot more error-prone. If you can find some kind of vulnerability that you can exploit over the Internet, that's always... Uh, it involves less people and more computers, and computers are generally more compliant. 
Uh, and once you get that initial toehold, the trick is to try and leverage that into other access. So if hypothetically, we've gained access to uh, a company's third-party marketing hosted website. But the marketing manager that logs into this third-party site uses the same password there that they use to log into their Outlook Web Access, well, well, their Outlook email. There happens to be an Outlook Web Access page exposed for that company, and we can log in there. We now have access to that person's email. Can you get things out of their inbox? Often there's passwords in the inbox that we could then use to leverage other kinds of access. Can we connect to a VPN, which starts giving us access inside the organization? Once you're inside the organization, then the gloves are off. That's generally where all the low-hanging fruit is because people believe they must secure what's on the internet. What's in in the the network is always um, a lot more vulnerable. And then it's a matter of of looking for what you're looking for. Uh, So are you trying to move money? You need to get access to financial systems. So we've got to move through networks. It's called lateral movement, gaining more privileges and trying to gain more, uh, more administrative privileges so that you can get more and more access. Sometimes that can be quick, you know, sort of two hop systems. Sometimes you need to really spend a lot of time. And then more recently, we need to evade uh, defensive teams that are, are hunting for people doing those sorts of things. And that's, uh, that adds a whole new dimension. So, I mean, there's a huge amount of sophistication on the side of the hackers, the illegal hackers, the people who are trying to access the the systems of companies. But internally within the companies, they are arming themselves better all the time. It feels like there's this, this massive digital arms race, therefore, that is happening practically everywhere. Absolutely. And we're firmly on the side of the defenders, the idea being if we can demonstrate something sophisticated before real attackers come up with it, then the defenders will be better able to defend. But more importantly, it's it's about not playing whack-a-mole with every little thing that's found, but coming up with um, theories on, or, or approaches for removing classes of vulnerability. So it's not can we fish that one user, but how do we make it that people can't pivot from someone's mailbox to a sensitive internal system in general? You know, that's the more interesting and more difficult challenge that defense does. The attackers have to find the one the one hole that lets them get through, whereas the defenders need to block all of them. Okay. How did this start? Um, you know, it, it's, it, you know, were you a, a 12-year-old sitting at school sort of changing your, your, your test results or something uh, and got bust and therefore were sent on, a, uh, on a, a course on how to be a better person? Or how did it all start for you? You know, I was I was literally a choir boy, but I also enjoyed enjoyed this uh, this stuff. So the difficulty, you know, when I was growing up in the '90s, is the only systems you could hack were other people's systems. These days, it's much easier. You know, you can download a full test environment and follow any number of YouTube tutorials. So yeah, in high school, we would we would try and find any system we could where we wouldn't get into too much trouble. And it wasn't about you know manipulating test results. It was about learning. How do, how do these things work? How can you manipulate stuff? So I think a lot of the time, the sort of pure hacker motivation is is learning, understanding how things work well enough to manipulate them uh, in ways that they they shouldn't. So I think you see that in a lot of a lot of children, definitely around high school age. You know, the kids who take things apart and put them back together in a different way to make it do something else. They're already demonstrating that kind of hacker intent. Something we jokingly call the evil bit. Okay, so I mean, did you study CompSide University? What was the sort of qualification that got you into technology in the first place? What what was the thing that 
that sort of got your interest and how did you then evolve into what it is that you're doing at the moment? Yeah, I was really lucky that I could go to university and study computer science and, and that really gave me a leg up, you know, having all of that additional information. But we have had people working with us who have geology degrees. Um, more people don't have degrees than do have degrees because it's really difficult to find people who, who want to do this work. I think the number of people that know that it's a potential job is a very vanishingly small pool. Uh, and then the number of people who actually have the capability. So a lot of the time we're just looking for people who are looking to get into this field so that we can take them and, and train them. And then I was really lucky to find uh, to find some mentors early on who could teach me a lot about how this works. Uh, but it was, I, I, I sort of, it was as I was hanging outside a friend of mine's window waiting for him to go to the bathroom so that I could uh, get to his computer and change his password that I realized I might have more than a passing interest, uh, interest in this field. <laughs> but it comes to different people in different ways. <laughs> Did you succeed? And what was the result? Uh, it depends on your measure of success. I succeeded in gaining access to the system I wanted to, but it was an early lesson in consent. Uh, when I told the people what I had done, uh, they were not very happy, and I got into a lot of trouble. Uh, and that was a theme a lot in the beginning until I learned that uh, asking people if they want you to test the security of their system is a surer way to success. <laughs> And <laughs> uh, um, did you do did you do boring jobs before this one? Um, or was this is has this been a sort of a driving force of your 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 technology career to date? I was really lucky to figure out that this is the career I wanted to do early on, um, and sort of pursued it with quite a singular focus. But definitely, we've got lots of people who who've done boring jobs beforehand. Some people who've done exciting jobs. I think you know anyone who's worked in the technology sector is potentially good to transfer over into this field. Uh, there's definitely quite a few developers gone bad uh, that we're we're able to retrain into this skill. So it's not a it's not a fixed career path, you know. It's not like I don't know accounting or, or being a medical doctor where there's a very stringent and direct uh, career path. This is something that different people come to in different ways and even at different times of lives. Uh, there's a belief that this is a sort of just a teenager's game. That's not true anymore. You know, maybe it was in the in the eighties. But uh, even the practitioners in this field have grown up. And the, the industry is evolving all the time. I mean, the the job of IT was to stop people breaking into your systems. It was to shore up defenses. And I suppose if we've learned anything from chess and perhaps from Jacob Zuma, from the life and times of Jacob Zuma, often the best means of defense is attack. And I, I, get a, I get a sense that the world of cybersecurity is moving more to attack mode than just sort of passive defense mode. Absolutely. I think the sort of wholesale adoption of these techniques by espionage and military organizations was the real turning point. Now, this isn't just criminals trying to to make money. There's a lot of people engaged in, in regular and active defense. You know, there are countries who fund some of their activities through compromising uh, Bitcoin exchanges and, and stealing things there, for example. You know, this has moved away from just criminalization or just certainly just tinkering um, to a lot of, lot of activity. That said, you know, I don't think all of us are the target of, of espionage actors. I think the average person running an average business, despite what people like me would love you to believe so that you buy our services, probably isn't being targeted by uh, an espionage organization, but probably is being targeted by a, um, a ransomware operator who's, and when I say targeted, it's kind of a game of numbers. You know, they're looking to get lucky. 
So if you can keep your, your base defenses up, uh, then for the most part, you can be okay. Uh, but yeah, I do think that there's a lot of um, offense happening, a lot more offense happening these days. It's so interesting, isn't it, in terms of the motivations of the hackers, the sort of people who are going in and trying to hack systems. Sometimes it is the kids who literally just want to see that they can. In some cases, it's malicious and it's sort of competitor efforts, I guess. And in some cases, it's the ransom demands that happen along with it. And we've seen the likes of Transtep being taken down by hackers and being asked for uh, to, to pay compensation. And usually it's done on the dark web and usually it's done via uh, cryptocurrencies uh, to make it harder to trace. But it, it's a fascinating world, is it not? And you get really, I suppose, get to see the sordy, sordid, seedy underbelly of humanity in this process. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's fully enmeshed in criminal enterprises now. It's not like there's a specific criminal hacking organization. In some cases, longstanding criminal organizations have adopted these techniques uh, and, and are doing these sorts of things. Thankfully, we don't get too involved in them. You know, we're, we're interested in what their techniques are so that we can emulate them um, or uh, emulate those sorts of things. But I think there are, there's certainly people in South Africa who work fairly tirelessly countering uh, the, the criminal elements um, who people don't really know. They don't know about the work they do. Um, and, and yeah, I think there's a whole CD underbelly. You know, it's linked to human trafficking. It's linked to drugs. It's linked to money laundering, all sorts of things like that. They just happen to use hacking um, as either their means of gathering the money or, or means of, of doing other things. Um, I think something like ransomware has become the way to monetize a lot of this activity. So that's why you maybe see less of the kids tinkering. Kids tinkering have access to all sorts of legitimate playgrounds these days. There's no real good reason to be compromising compromising real systems. I think the closest kids come to that these days is uh, reporting to my broadband that you can gain access to some organization's website in South Africa. But there's still a clear intent to report it and get it fixed. You know, they're not trying to defraud these organizations of money. Fascinating world of how Dominic White, the ethical hacker, the ethical hacking director and the MD of Orange Cyber Defense in South Africa, how he makes money on The Money Show. It's a, a way that we can simply highlight people's interesting career choices, what they studied and how they did and how they got to the place that they now inhabit. And of course, how that occupies them and hopefully rewards them well here on The Money Show on a Monday.